Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Comic Book Workshop. It's a podcast about making comics. My name is Jason Hammonds, and I am not an expert. I'm just trying to learn all I can from those who do it best. On this episode, I chat with writer Curtis Clough. You'll know Curtis's work from books like The Wild Cosmos, Beastlands, and his new series, Slightly Exaggerated, which is on Kickstarter now. Uh, Curtis tells me about making his own success through Kickstarter, the pros and cons of self-publishing, and uh, we even get deep inside his process for writing. Uh, Before we get into the interview, though, I do want to tell you guys about Garm. That is the graphic artist resource merchant. Uh, This is a great website that I've partnered with. Uh, They uh, create all sorts of different effects or, uh, you know, kits and, and, and textures and brushes and uh, all sorts of stuff like that for Procreate, for Photoshop. Um, it's, it's a huge resource for digital artists uh, like myself. You know, I, I love drawing and stuff, you know, sketching, but when it comes down to making comics, I tend to do it mostly on my computer um, as well as my design work and stuff like that. Uh, and I have been using Garm's products quite a lot lately. Um, they have this uh, engraving effect kit, which is really freaking awesome and comes in very handy. Uh, if you ever want to make something, you know, look like it's engraved, you know, like give that sort of metallic effect to something like there's a lot of resources like that that are really, really useful um, for, for certain cases. They've got all sorts of bundles where you can save a bunch of money. Um, but Garm is great. So whether you use Procreate or Photoshop, uh, there's a lot of stuff there for you. If you want to, you know, add a little texture to your work, add, you know, a bit of, you know, character and, and something to set it apart. Uh, it's it's a great resource to enhance your art. Um, so if you go to GarmCompany.com slash TMBC, you can uh, use that code and you will be able to uh, get a nice little discount on whatever uh, you decide to buy. That'll get you 20% off. So remember to go to garmcompany.com slash TMBC and uh, get some discounts on your digital art kits. Look, it's been a little while since the last episode. Um, I obviously, as we've, I've, you all know about it if you've been listening to the show for a while, but I'm working on a Netflix animated movie and I've had this uh, giant design job, which is uh, just about done. If, if you're curious to see some of the, the fruits of that labor, um, you can check out Dueling Genre. That's a, a podcast network and uh, they've recently had sort of a, a rebrand, relaunch. Uh, and so they hired me to kind of, redesigned the look and feel of their podcast network. Uh, So I redesigned all of their podcast covers, um, gave them a new logo for the network, and we're sort of working on the um, website design right now, as well as uh, a few upcoming shows that haven't been announced yet. But there's uh, some fun stuff, and I'm really, really proud of the work that I did. Um, Doing all that design work was something interesting. It's, It's something that I've only done for my own stuff before, right? Like I've designed my covers for podcasts or comics or whatever, Um, you know, these little things wherever, uh, you know, because I I tend to be someone who just sort of, if there's something I'm curious about, then I learn how to do it. You know, if there's a project I want to accomplish, then I'll just teach myself how to do it and go from there, which is, you know, how I started drawing comics and and doing podcasts and all of this stuff. Um, And so this was an interesting challenge to kind of take the stuff that I had gained from doing my own designs over the, the years and try to sort of apply it on a large scale, you know, for, I don't know, 10, 12 different shows. I can't even remember anymore, um, as well as the network itself, uh, and try to take the thematics that people, you know, had in mind and wanted to convey, uh, and, and make it all cohesive and also unique. Um, you know, one, one challenge of the job was that there are so many different shows and so many different creators on their network that, uh, the visions for what everyone wanted their show to be could kind of at first glance seem 
uh, very different and, and seem like, you know, they, they would all be very drastically different uh, looks. But they wanted to have a cohesive look to their network. They wanted, you know, if, if you see one of their shows, if you see one of their podcast artwork that, that, that you would know uh, that it was one of their shows. And so trying to find that balance of making sure that each individual show had its own identity, that the, you know, creators and, and, and the, you know, thematics that those creators wanted to bring out in the show would all be kind of evident in the cover, right? That it establishes the right tone, um, but that it all feels cohesive and, and works together. Um, and, you know, often using design elements from whatever the types of things they are talking about on that particular show are, um, so it was really cool. And, and a lot of it was like very throwbacky, like a lot of my stuff is, you know, there's a podcast they have called The Doctor's Companion. And I kind of did, you know, something of sort of a, a very like stripped down iconographic look with a little bit of like Rankin Bass influence and a little bit of like, you know, pulp sort of sci-fi novel look to it. Uh, and then they had, you know, another show that was more like a talk show type of vibe. And, and so I kind of brought out a bit of the like, you know, like talk show late night kind of desk thing, but then used a little bit of sort of like, uh, I don't know, like 90s vapor wavy kind of design with that. And then um, they have a show called Dueling Genre Versus that was very like arcade game kind of influenced with the design. So like it gave me a lot of room to really stretch and explore and like learn new things about design and about like what I was really interested in. And, and, um, and it also helped me kind of break through a rut of like, I've been really... Uh, uh, trying, you know, for a long time and really kind of something that I, I try to stick with throughout everything that I do, trying to stretch myself and trying to like, you know, not allow myself to just sort of get caught up in like one particular style, one particular, you know, genre, look, theme, whatever. And so it was kind of something that helped me really like stretch my wings and, and kind of open up my horizons because, you know, I'd I'd pitch a design concept uh, and, you know, the first concept I would pitch would be very much, you know, like something that I would normally do, whatever kind of came out of my brain first. And I think that, you know, sometimes you need to get that out. You need to get that thing that's on the surface of your your head, the thing that comes first to your mind. You got to get a few of those things out before you can actually like get past whatever your, uh, you know, unconscious kind of like, you know, the, 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 the fences around your yard, right, mentally that that you have to kind of explore that yard first before you can be like okay like maybe I should step past this fence and see what else is out there um you know and so I, I would hand in a couple of early design concepts and they'd be like yeah not quite like I don't know this isn't quite what we're going for or whatever um and then eventually you know on in some cases I went through like 14 concepts <laughs> on a show cover every once in a while I'd get it on you know like the second or third try or you know there were a couple of cases where we thought the first try was going to be the one and then as it, you know, went longer and longer, it was kind of like, oh, okay, actually, maybe we're kind of thinking more like this. Um, just a lot of a lot of unique de uh, design challenges and, and um, you know, really, really stretching my brain and making sure that I'm not getting too, uh, too stuck in my ways. Um, and so now that I'm, you know, just about able to, to, you know, go fully back into making comics, it's, it's really been interesting seeing like just doing stuff in my sketchbooks. Uh, how different my approach to drawing is now. I think I'm thinking a lot more compositionally. I'm thinking a lot more like, you know, about, I think I get caught up in anatomy a lot um, because it's honestly not a thing that I'm amazing at. And so like, I'll get really stuck on it trying to like make things work anatomically. And then I end up noodling the drawing to death and, and stuff. And I think that I'm starting to loosen up a bit on that because I I've been just doing so much silhouette work lately. Um, 
that I'm, you know, and, and also I think, you know, probably working in animation and working in the story department, that's helping a lot where it's just, you know, these board artists that are capable of, you know, doing a hundred drawings in a day, uh, you know, their stuff isn't going to, you know, going to be like intricately woven muscles and tendons together, right? Like it's, it's very evocative, um, and expressive. And so I'm, I'm leaning more into that stuff and, uh, you know, working on comics again, it's just, it's, it's cool to see how my work has kind of changed throughout this, uh, this past couple months doing all these design jobs. So, um, you know, fun, fun time. That's, that's sort of the update here. And I don't know, maybe there's something to glean from that. Have, have, have you been stretching your style lately? What's what, I would, let me know, friggin' tweet at me or whatever. I want to see what people are learning and working on and, and, you know, growing from, but, uh, with, with all the ramblings out of the way, I just want to say thank you again for listening to the show and uh you know we'll definitely have some some great episodes coming forward i've, I've got some guests lined up and just trying to figure out recording times and whatever uh because that's always complicated when you've got very busy people uh and that you also are busy yourself i'm so much more busy than i used to be and that's certainly complicating things um but it's fun it's great and i love making the show and i'm so glad that you all love it and listen to it um, if you're new to the show, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. That's super, super helpful, um, you know, especially because I had a, you know, recent hiatus for over a year. And so it's nice to get, you know, some sort of refreshed energy into the feed and let people see it. Um, but anyway, all that stuff out of the way. Uh, let's get on into the interview with Curtis Clow. I am here with uh, with a guest who's long overdue. Uh, we we recorded uh, the first interview with you, God, so long ago, uh, back when we could actually go to conventions. But uh, that was that was lost in the hard drive apocalypse of 2019 or whenever that was. But uh, he is he is finally coming on air for the show. Uh, the writer of the Wild Cosmos and Beastlands and uh, the newly launched Kickstarter, slightly exaggerated. Welcome to the show, Curtis Clow. Thank you. It's good to be back. I think we met back at like Long Beach Comic Con a few years ago. I, yeah, and that was right. that was like my only convention of the year this year. I went back to it in January before everything oh, shut down. Man. I'm trying to remember if I ended up going to Long Beach this year. I might not have. I don't even that's the thing about like time anymore is that none of it makes any sense. And like I truly we could have met in 2017 or 2019 and it <laughs> honestly makes no difference to me at Definitely. this point. Like there's no I can't tell. It's funny. Um, the convention this year was just like completely dead. And then <laughs> now I'm just missing it. Like even a convention like that, I would just love to go to now. Oh my God, totally. And I mean, those are kind of fun sometimes, like, you know, because I mean, when we met at, at Long Beach, you know, it was it wasn't as dead as I'm sure it was uh, uh, in 2020. But like, it is one of those conventions where you get a lot of breath in between interactions and you get a lot of space when you're walking down the aisles and like, yeah, but those are fun, too, because you get to like meet other creators and just kind of <laughs> hang out and make friends. Man, that that's why they are my my favorite conventions to go to. Is yeah, it's like the the hang is a lot better, and you know, it's a lot of people, especially like on on you know, sort of like the the smaller press level where it's a lot of people sort of doing the same thing, grinding it out. Like it's not as as you know, sort of infected with corporations selling toys. Um, yeah, definitely. But anyway, uh, as as I mentioned in talking about your credits, you you are pretty prolific uh, in the comics game. I mean, you know, you've got obviously slightly exaggerated number two is is starting up this week as people are listening. Uh, but you've also done five issues of Beastlands through Kickstarter. You've done uh, so far is it three issues of the Wild Cosmos? Yep, three so far. 
how do you i mean what walk me through sort of where this all starts uh uh you know getting into to comics kickstartering and how do you balance all of it because i personally as as one of your backers i can see the updates you know on, on the different <laughs> projects and like there's a lot of them you know you're, you're really juggling a lot so where does it start and how do you keep it all straight Oh man, it's uh, it's a lot of juggling and like balancing things. I mean, just even as like an indie creator putting out multiple series, it just takes up a lot of uh, money. Is the biggest thing like paying sure. for an artist as a as a writer. Like I have to pay all these artists and pay for printing and everything. So the Kickstarter helps with all of that, and yeah. then just balancing time to like actually write it all. And then for these Kickstarters, I'm still doing like all the fulfillment and shipping out books. So just balancing all of that. Yeah. But, so are you, you're getting all the books shipped to your house and then shipping them out to each individual backer yourself, all that stuff? Yeah, I'm still doing that. So like oh. I have a studio apartment in uh, California and it's like filled with like uh, halfway filled with oh books now. Gosh. And uh, I think this year is a year where I'm either going to move to a bigger place or um, or find like a fulfillment partner to help me out with uh, shipping books and storing them. Sure. Man, that's uh, <laughs> props to you for that, because that's like for me, at least personally, shipping and logistics and stuff like that. It is it is a nightmare. And I like I have such a hard time uh, keeping track of that kind of it's, thing. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely my least favorite part. And like this past one for the last Beastlands Kickstarter has been like mm-hmm. the most stressful just for the amount of backers we had, which is a good problem. I mean, you can't complain about having a lot of backers <laughs> and like doing well, but just like the shipping aspect, it's it's stressful. So I would definitely like to hand it off. Yeah, I mean, shoot on 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 Beastlands. You had let me let me see what the the number is. Yeah, over a thousand backers uh, on the most recent Beastlands Kickstarter. So that's that's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of tape to be putting down, a lot of labels to be printing. Yep, yep. Um, so I, I was curious, looking back at your your Kickstarter projects, uh, your first project is is called Training Wheels. It's it's the first of the Wild Cosmos projects, but this is a it looks like a print of a double page spread from Wild Cosmos. Is that correct? Yeah, it was just like a little uh, one page story. It's like two pages and we printed it as an 11 by 17 print. And it was like a really small goal. I think it had like maybe 11 backers and made a couple hundred dollars. And it was just for me to like learn how to use Kickstarter on like a on like a small scale. Tell me, tell me about the lessons you learned there. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's very, very small scale. The goal was, yeah, a very, you know, nice little goal of one hundred and forty dollars, which is certainly easy to make, and you did. Uh, and obviously, it led to all this. But, but what lessons did you learn from that? I mean, just uh, in general, like marketing and trying to get the word out there can be definitely tough as a beginner, and then um, uh, promoting it. Or I guess that's the same as uh, the marketing it stuff, but. Uh, like so sending surveys and fulfilling it and everything, all this stuff yeah. that like if I wouldn't have learned those lessons on like a small scale, I would probably be way more stressed now on this like big scale with over a thousand backers. I'm sure. And and uh, so that that was kind of the kickoff of of the Wild Cosmos. Did you always know, you know, for immediately from doing that two page, uh, uh, you know, project or whatever? Did you did you already have the rest of the first issue of Wild Cosmos in the works and stuff? And it was just sort of a test, or like were you waiting to get the rest done until you saw how that worked out? No, it was always in the works. So that was um. So I mean, I probably was already halfway done. We probably already had already out of the. Uh, are almost halfway done for the first issue of the wild cosmos and then i just wanted to get like my feet wet with that small kickstarter before launching the first wild cosmos one that's it's it's really interesting the way because i I don't think i've ever seen anyone build up that way uh and i I think that's a a fascinating way to go is like start on the smallest scale possible and then sort of you know let that be your kind of first entry point into it yeah Um, i mean that's just like uh, that's what i recommend to most creators um 
just starting small. I mean, even everyone wants to do like such a big project for their first project. And it's like so hard to do as indie creators, just so much money. Yeah. Well, and tell me about, you know, maintaining. So, so now, you know, currently you've, you've essentially got three, what seem like at the very least semi ongoing series. Uh, uh, what's it like in terms of balancing those three different projects? Each one of them is, you know, sort of going to Kickstarter and doing another issue, another issue, another issue, like keeping that all straight in your head. What, what's been the most complicated part of it for you or what's been the skill that you've learned the most from having these three series going on? Um, it was, it's like balancing, like I said, but, um, I mean, you're working with different collaborators on each of them. Like I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. the writer on each of them. I don't do any sure. art. So it's like trying to figure out their schedules, like slightly exaggerated. We did back in like the uh, fall of 2019. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Pius, my co-creator on that, he's just kind of been busy with other publishers. So we're finally coming back for that. So it's like working with my co-creators and seeing how their schedules line up so I can get the next issues ready. And then um, I signed deals with all three of these series at publishers eventually. So once we get like the whole series done on Kickstarter, it can release through publishers as well. Yeah, I saw it. So is it Wild Cosmos that's at Scout? Yeah, Um, yeah. So once we get all five issues done, that will get re-released through Scout. Amazing. And then what about uh, Beastlands and Slightly Exaggerated? Both of those have deals now? Yeah, both of those have deals for like a trade deal. So once we get the full series done, uh, the trades will come out with a publisher. Um, So hopefully I can talk more about that later this year. Sure. Now, now let's uh, let's rewind the clocks back. Uh, what was your first entry point with comics as a medium? Uh, as a little kid, um, reading like Spider Man and just superhero comics and stuff. Interesting. What what were what were the like favorite series of yours? Do you have any like issue or like you know sort of memory I wasn't that too deep into it? Just because like it was such a different world for me, and I didn't have the internet and stuff. I couldn't just like look up where to buy them and stuff. So. It was like I was I was intrigued by them, but I wasn't like a heavy reader. I just had like some like random issues that I would just reread and then I would try to like make my own comics. And where does writing start for you? You know, even even outside of comics, but like where, where does the, the interest in writing as a, as a form start to start to get into your head? I mean, uh, ever since like I saw comics, I would like to try to like, write my own stories as a kid. And then I was like interested in trying to like write a game, write a uh, video game story and stuff like that. So it's just always been uh, creative and interested in that aspect of I don't know if I get into something like I always want to figure out like I'm, I'm always creative. So I'm always thinking about how I can make something like, if I get into like card <laughs> games, I'm always like thinking about making a card game then, you know, instead of <laughs> sure. just enjoying it like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you did, you know, you mentioned writing for video games. You did end up doing some video game writing at, at some point. Is that right? Yeah, I've done a few um, freelance just to kind of survive uh, since I'm like a full time sure. writer now. So just some extra money. And I, I enjoy it. Like it's more for fun, too, because I just like video games. So it's kind of cool to get to work in that world. Absolutely. And and how long have you been writing full time? Just over a year now. So I uh, I quit my day job right before the pandemic hit. <laughs> and then Fun I just timing. got lucky that like my Kickstarters did so well in 2020, but it was like, it was already like a super nerve wracking thing to quit my day job that I had for the past yeah. six years. And then, uh, you know, the world shut down. Yeah. Well, and what, what were you, what were you doing as a day job? What kind of work were you doing before? I was a, uh, completely unrelated. It was just like a cable technician that I was doing in LA. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing, man. That's really cool. It's so funny because I feel like for some reason, and I don't know why this is, maybe there's some sort of psychology thing, but like it feels like most people who quit their day job to go into comics for some reason, like nine out of 10 are, are like marketing people, you know, either in like design or in like, you know, some form of like writing for advertising or whatever. And so there's a lot of people that it feels, you know, very like analogous, but it's uh, 
it's always nice when someone from a completely different background is able to sort of make it happen and and do it without the sort of, you know, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like coming into any industry where you're selling stuff from a marketing industry is a little bit of, of, a, of a cheat or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, mine was completely, uh, completely unrelated, just like a regular blue collar <laughs> job. And then I just really hated it. So I was always, I've always been trying to figure out how to do something creatively. And like, I sure. did, I, I'm like a self-taught writer. I didn't go to school for any of this. I never really wow. had time to school from work. So that's that that's really interesting so what was your like in terms of you know being self-taught because i i'm very similar i didn't really have much of an education in writing or art or anything like that uh what was your method of seeking out methods of learning you know or what were you looking to i mean while i was working i'd be you know looking for podcasts like this one and then <laughs> Hell yeah, bud. listening while i was working um to podcasts interviews with writers you know you have like yeah. youtube like the internet's such a great resource that yeah. can be used good if uh you know if you want to and then yeah. um i mean you just have to practice like i think the best way for me learning to write and getting better is making stuff and then hiring editors to like critique my scripts and mm. give me feedback and i think that's where i improved a lot wow and where'd you so you know like when you hire your first editor for instance where'd you find them how'd you sort of get linked up with them uh, just through like forums, like on Reddit, there's a comic writing spot there. Um, yeah. the, the writer, what is it? A comic experience forum. You could find some editors oh, yeah. there for like specific for like comic scripts. I think that's probably sure. pretty important if you're trying to make a comic is to find like yeah. a specific editor for it. Totally. What, and, and in terms of formatting, did you, you know, find like comic book scripts out there on the internet? Was there like a particular writer whose format spoke the most to you or did you just sort of wing it and kind of figure out your own format as you went? I kind of developed my own format working with editors and like seeing other scripts. I think Jim Zub might have had something on his site that oh, I yeah. saw. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, like I, I think I started just like bullet porting, bullet pointing um, my scripts and then it like definitely evolved into something more structured. That's so interesting. I do, do you have like an outlining process or like a method that's sort of developed? I mean, now you've been at this for, for so many years. Is there do you have like a comfortable process that you fall into for writing each issue? Yeah, I do. And then um, as like as I've, I have these three like kind of ongoing series and as I like I started to develop new pitches, it kind of gets easier because I have like that same process that I can go back to where I start like outlining and then uh, getting scripts ready and everything. So walk me through it. You know, when you've you've got sort of your general idea, do you start with like a theme or a character? Like, is there is there a sort of beating heart that you always try to go back to back into before you're like really outlining or, or scripting? Um, like I have like a whole journal full of just these, I only write like high concept <laughs> stuff, you know, like mostly like fantasy sure. and sci-fi. It's just my personal interest. So then yeah, I just try to think of interesting stuff and then like try to give it like kind of like meaning like Beastlands is, uh, based off of my dog got hit by a car and it was like, oh. I, I wanted to put that in the story, like caring for a pet. So it was like trying to, trying to make the story, give it meaning, you know, so it's not just entertainment. So it has like a good totally. theme and everything. Yeah. And so do you, you, what does your outline look like? My outlines, I will then start to do like just basic story structure that's probably used in like novels and TV and everything, most other mediums, um, giving it like a solid story structure before I'll start to like outline every issue. So like issue by issue, just kind of write a paragraph. Mm -hmm. And is that, do you do that like longhand in a notebook? Do you tend to do everything on the computer I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm getting real in the weeds with you. Right yeah, now. No, no, I'm weird. And I do like like physically writing stuff. So like when I mm-hmm. uh, I'll even outline again before I write an issue where I'll do like page by page breakdowns. I don't know if I learned that for someone. It's just easier for me where I'll like bullet point what's going to go. What's going to happen on every page of like an issue. 
that mm-hmm. I'll usually do like with my hand. But when I'm doing like story structure stuff and like character arcs, I usually do that like in Google Docs. Hell yeah, Google Docs. Yeah, it's just the easiest. That's, it's everywhere. It's so easy. You get it everywhere. You get it on your phone. Like there's no. I, I, yeah, I love Google Docs. Um, especially if you have a collaborator. Like if if you're ever collaborating with someone on on any kind of project, even if they're not a writer, if they're an artist, whatever. Like it's so easy to share stuff over Google Docs. Yeah, um, I mean, and then comics are pretty much all collaboration. So. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I've wanted or really every series that I'm working on right now. Like it's it's nice. You just create a folder. You're like, OK, here's where our roughs are going. Here's where our pencils. Here's our inks. Here's colors like drop it in when it's ready and then we can all see it like it's so organized and easy. Yep. Um, uh, so so one thing I'm I'm kind of curious about is is obviously Kickstarter has become its own sort of infrastructure in comics. And I, I remember reading something, I think it was on the beat or someone, but like that Kickstarter now account, account, or accounts for like the fourth largest publisher of comics in the US, apparently. Um, just in terms of volume of comics that that is produced uh, uh, through Kickstarter. Um, but wh- where did Kickstarter first come into your purview as a medium that people were, were um, publishing comics through or, or getting comics funded through? Uh, just being on the indie scene, like going to conventions and stuff, you see a lot of stuff that came from Kickstarter. And then, um, like I, I read comics as a kid a little bit and then I didn't get back into it until like my early twenties. And that's when I, I was mostly into the indie scene at first and that's mm. just like all Kickstarter stuff. And I just knew that that was like a path that that could be somewhere that I could go to like make my own stuff before I started getting sure. into like image books and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and in that process, I'm always curious because th- this is something I do as well is like, in, and that's why this podcast exists, but like seeking out interviews and listening to, you know, writers, artists, whoever talk, uh, who were the, the creators that you most would be like, oh, you see an interview with them and you're immediately listening? Uh, back in uh, when I first started, Jason Brubaker had like a blog that I would oh, yeah. uh, read a lot. He talks about making comics a lot. Um, and then just like my favorite writers, like anything with Kirkman or uh, Remender, it's always interesting to like hear their journey of uh, how they made it in comics, which is like completely different than I feel like making it in comics now. It's all through Kickstarter and self-publishing. Totally. But back then, they were just, you know, able to work with publishers still. I know it's it's an interesting thing where where because uh, the marketplace has now become more accessible, which I think is always good. Right. Like the fact that anyone can can put up a Kickstarter and sort of, you know, if they're able to promote it and if the work is, you know, like high quality or whatever, like there's, there's an easy way or, or a low barrier for entry. If you really like have the, have the will to get something done, then it's easy to get it out there, you know, relatively speaking. And it's, it's interesting listening to people like that, obviously like Kirkman or, or, you know, like any of these people who, who came up mostly pre-internet, you know, or semi pre-internet before it sort of became the entire crux of society, you know? Yeah, uh, it's interesting hearing about that because so much of it is like, you know, oh, I, I bugged this guy on the phone for, you know, however, like, you know, like Kirkman would talk about, like he faked an interview with with uh, Eric Larson and then bugged him for another like two years or so until he was able to like pitch stuff to the publisher. Um, and it's it, it's just funny because like that is a thing that like, hey, props to you for having the gumption for doing that. But the barrier for entry was so much higher just because most people aren't going to have access to be able to, you know, talk to Eric Larson and bug him for two years, you know, like definitely. Yeah. I, I can't remember who said it, if it was Rick Remender or Kirkman, but they were like, we had Kickstarter back then and it was called a high interest uh, credit card. And I'm just, <laughs> yeah. and it's like, it's true. You, you just had to like put yourself on the line and hopefully it works out. But now, like, we're really lucky in this day where we can actually raise the money without ever having to put a book out and not have to get in debt trying to make comics, you know? 
yeah, I mean, it's it's why like the Zeric grant doesn't exist anymore because you know it's not really needed, right? Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about when you're finding an artist, right? Like you you now have three different artists that you work with, and obviously like multi layered creative teams. Where are you looking for your artists? How are you sort of getting linked up with them? Mostly through social media these days. I think when I first started, it was just through anywhere, like through ArtStation or Forms or uh, DeviantArt. But um, I mean, now that I'm kind of more experienced, I'll have artists uh, reaching out to me sometimes to work if I have time. So that's like a a weird thing when artists hit you up to work. But (laughs) yeah, definitely. And and so uh, with... I mean, t- talk about like your first experience giving notes to an artist. You know, I think that for for a lot of writers, that's a huge, you know, nightmare of like, you might embarrass yourself, you might give way too many notes, or you might not like know sort of where the boundary is or how to do that. How did you kind of feel out um, what that creative cohesion would be when you're when you're working on like Wild Cosmos? It was a learning process, like, uh, like this whole creating comics is it's constantly learning and getting better. And mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm definitely a better collaborator now. Like I, I was probably over kind of over controlling back then when I first started, like trying to make the comic how I wanted it and how I saw it. But like, I don't have sure. an art background or anything. So it's, uh, I think I've learned to more to, um, to trust my collaborators. And like, I rarely have to give any feedback on like any thumbnails or anything. Like I, I trust their vision for it. Totally. That, ma- that makes a lot of sense. Have you ever thought about like giving drawing a try or do you ever doodle at all? Uh, yeah, I do it for fun. Like, practicing gestures and anatomy just trying to get better as a hobby uh when i have time like when i'm shipping books it's hard to have time to do like much any much any hobbies like that but i like it like i enjoy it i think if i uh like if i put more time into it do you think what what if you were to if you were to sort of like uh make a judgment call right now what do you think the um percentage chance is that you might at some point draw uh, a comic that you write oh man that's uh (laughs) Like I would want it to look good, so it would take a sure. a lot of time for me to practice. But uh, hey. maybe thirty percent chance that I actually do that one day. Hey, you know what? Thirty percent. I will. I will take. I. I'm always like, it's a it's a sick obsession I have. Um, I think partially because I sort of started as a writer and like have slowly been learning, you know, art kind of stuff. And I've always drawn, but like I had never really like taken any art classes or like taken it seriously until like the last couple of years. And I think that I have this obsession with like, you know, Kirkman talks about how he originally wanted to be a, a comic book artist. And like, apparently Grant Morrison draws out every single comic that he writes it, to some degree. Like I'm obsessed with getting people who are, are, are co- like just strictly writers to, to take a stab at drawing a comic at some point. Cause I just think that'd be really fun to see. Yeah. I think it would be fun. And it's probably good. Like as a writer to then go back into only writing and to like have that experience of actually drawing comics. It's probably uh, totally. probably a good experience to have. Totally. Like I, I, my first mini comic after drawing that, like I, I instantly knew so much more about writing where I was like, Oh, like there's a lot of stuff that like maybe I could have done better for myself here. And then also a lot of stuff that I'm like, Oh, I like don't need to be so, uh, like I I don't have to be so locked down on certain things when I'm writing, because then you'll realize that like, no matter what I thought it was when I was writing the script, it's completely different when you're drawing it. And there's like more opportunities where you can open stuff up as long as the script's not, you know, so rigid. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Even for like lettering, like I, for the first issue of the wild cosmos, when I was still figuring out how to make a comic, I was going to letter it myself and my letters were so bad. And like, I learned (laughs) a lot through lettering. And then luckily, um, Tobin Rassicott, uh, reached out to me during that Kickstarter wanting to work with me. And then, Whoa. you know, I was kind of like uh, questionable about it at first. You know, I wanted to try to do it myself. And then le- I let him letter a few pages and it just looks so much better. Like a professional letter <laughs> just really makes a huge difference. 
it's so it's so interesting how you know i mean it, it is truly a craft and obviously like it's constantly underserved when people talk about the 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 work of making comics and i think that you know people like aditya bidikar and and hassan otsman elhow are like doing a lot of work to make people realize what an art form lettering is uh but it is crazy to see like how big of a difference it makes when a professional letterer comes onto a project, you know, and it happens with Kickstarter all the time, right? Like people will put out a comic through Kickstarter with their own lettering and then it gets a deal with a publisher and then it gets relettered, you know, with a professional publisher. And so you can see them side by side and be like, oh, this flows so much better or this moment hits with so much more impact or like this scene breathes, you know, like these little things that you would never think about because you're just sort of reading the words and looking at the pictures. Um, I don't know. It's fascinating. Definitely, yeah. So, to tell me, tell me where the wild cosmos comes comes from. You know, the the, the idea for that. Obviously, you love uh, you know genre and like high high fantasy and sci fi and stuff like that. But what was what was the kind of heart of it for you, or the thing that was compelling you to to tell this story? The wild cosmos. Um, well, it was first I, I had it outlined to be like this big thing. Like I was saying, like most people make like a, their first project this kind of. Mm-hmm too big uh scale <laughs> yeah. so like that that was like supposed to be like this big graphic novel uh like three graphic novels long and then it quickly uh downscaled to like five issues mm-hmm. so it was just like my first project just learning a lot about uh like what's realistic of getting it out and like how long it takes to make actually make comics oh yeah but the actual story uh like a lot of my stuff is influenced from like studio ghibli i'm a big fan of them and like miyazaki Sure. And um, it's about a uh, a girl that has to leave her planet to, and she's like uh, the bond between her and a space pirate uh, throughout their journey. Mm. That's amazing. I, it's and I I love that book truly. Like it's it's such a fun comic, and I can't wait for the the um, full graphic novel to come out or the the next Kickstarter, whichever comes first. Um, and one thing I like, I guess one of the reasons that I bring Wild Cosmos up, even though there's not currently a Kickstarter active and, you know, your next project is slightly exaggerated, is that uh, one thing that I've seen you do with your projects before is that in your backer tiers, you will include a tier that will sort of, you know, allow people to catch up on your other series and and sort of like, you know, bring in from, uh, you know, the oove of the Curtis Clow uh, uh, lore, so to speak. So, I guess really one of my questions is, you know, if people are, are looking to back slightly exaggerated number two, are there tiers there? Are there going to be bonuses like there often are where people can sort of catch up on a couple of your other series? Yeah, definitely. So like we'll have all of Beastlands available there and the Wild Cosmos also. So we have like five issues done of Beastlands now and then three of uh, the Wild Cosmos. So all of that will be available too. Hell yeah. Now to get into slightly exaggerated, uh, I'm 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 curious about the influences. Obviously, one thing at least that's that sticks out to me very strong is is like sort of the Indiana Jones adventurer archaeologists, you know, like that that kind of story. But tell me a bit about where slightly exaggerated comes from. When did you start thinking about this and sort of how did it start moving as something that you wanted to actually bring into the world? Yeah, so that one is uh yeah, it's definitely like Indiana Jones meets like Studio Ghibli, this weird fantasy world, but it's uh yeah. on like the deeper level, it's kind of my views on like religion. I'm an atheist, so it's like a story that uh tries to explore that more and uh it's like this world where religion's law mm. and um just kind of all about my existential crisis uh <laughs> somewhere I can like write about that and then it's tied together with uh Pius's beautiful art. It's honestly, it's gorgeous. And I like I'm a sucker for coloring as anyone who listens to the show knows I'm, I'm big on coloring and I'm big on tactile coloring, you know, coloring that makes makes it feel like there is something in your hand and, and gives a bit of depth to the image. Um, and that's something that is very well done in this book. I mean, I, I think the 
the textures are are very prominent, but also tastefully handled. You know, I think that a lot of colorists can go a bit overboard on texture, or a bit overboard on effects and stuff. And this is like a perfect symbiosis of of coloring and line art that makes it feel exactly in line with the tone of the book. Um, it's really really impressive. Yeah, he's awesome. Like I just feel lucky to even be working with him. So I, w- I was a fan of his work before we ever started working on slightly exaggerated. So his uh, oh, his yeah. art on issue two is even better. Ooh, I'm I cannot wait. Uh, were, were you raised, uh, religious at all, or have you always been atheist? Uh, I wasn't like, my family wasn't super religious, but, um, I just was never that into it. Um, so uh, like a lot of my stories kind of have that themes of, uh, of death and what happens after death. And so this Mm -hmm. story is about a girl that's dying and she's like, she's going after, uh, treasure hunting and stuff, but trying to do something right with the last of her time. Interesting. That's uh, it's fun. And I, I like the blending. It's something that that, uh, you know, again, I'm always a sucker for It's just the blending of different types of genres, you know, to take sort of like some of your, you know, pirate tropes and Indiana Jones stuff and mix it with like this strange fantasy of, you know, like flying creatures and, and you know, like bizarre worlds with floating lands and um, flying wheels <laughs> flying wheels, man. It's really like it's it's the thing that I love the most. I'm like because because I think you and I in from from the writer perspective from the like story interest perspective I think the one of the big things we share is the the love for big like bombastic genre stuff that doesn't really you know limit itself by one type of genre right that that's not sitting there going oh okay well this is hard sci-fi so I can't do this or can't do that you know or this is fantasy so like I can't have technology you know like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff or like this is space so they can't breathe like yeah, I, I like, you know, throwing out those sort of things and just be like, this is going to be a fun story. And like, it doesn't matter if it's not the real world or if it doesn't like it. Yeah, like to... the wild cosmos is definitely not like hard sci fi. Like they're kind of just like flying through space and stuff. Um, yeah, man. But uh, yeah, I just want to like, I don't I don't think I'll ever write anything that's like hard sci fi or just fantasy. Like, I just want to have fun with the story. And then that's the great thing about comics is you don't have to like like for television or movies, like the budget for this stuff would just be crazy. But for comics, it's mm-hmm. all the same budget, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious about that, too. You know, as a writer, obviously, you've, you've written in, in comics, you've written in video games. Is there is there a part of you that like wants to write in every medium imaginable? Like, do you want to write, you know, novels and TV and film and whatever? Or do you kind of feel like comics is the zone that you like really want to like stick to and like that you're not that interested in the others? Uh, I'm kind of split on that. Like I've I think I used to be kind of more hard-headed and just loved comics and wanted to only stick to comics. But then also, mm-hmm. as uh, I've uh, been making a living as a writer for a year, I realized you kind of have to branch out just to uh, just like make a living, you know, and pay your bills. Yeah. So like I'm open to doing other things. And I kind of got into more novels this year. So I've like played with the idea of what if I wrote like a Beastlands novel, novel or something like that. Oh, interesting. So I'm open to it. But um, I definitely like writing for games, though. It's fun. Man, novel writing to me is is very intimidating. I think the thing, you know, because the the vast majority of writing I've done has been for comics and for for like, you know, screenwriting stuff, whether it's, you know, for TV or for film. But like the thing that intimidates me the most is is to be talking directly to the reader and having to maintain that artifice of being sort of in the world in the narrator voice rather than being like you're talking to an artist. So you can just say this guy's standing here looking over at this guy with this expression. You know what I mean? Like that when you're in a novel, it's got to be like much more in the head or in the narration of it. And like, 
I don't know. Like it, that, that to me is insanely intimidating. Do you get that same thing? Or like, is there no, something yeah, definitely intimidating, like 300 pages of just my words that I wrote? Like I was, my yeah. girlfriend was asking me like, uh, cause I, you know, I was playing around with the idea. I didn't want to make like an official goal for this year yet. Cause I don't know mm-hmm. if I would actually want to commit to it. Like, I feel like I will have to really love novels to want to put in all sure. that work and try to write something that I'm proud of. But, um, she was like asking me, she was like, what would be the difference? I was like, well, I guess like, instead of describing panels to an artist, I would just be like, writing those descriptions on the actual page you know yeah and it's like it's just so easy to like not because i think you're you in your head your words are so much more important when they're just going directly to the reader right like when you're writing to an artist you can be like it's nighttime uh these two people are sitting around a fire and you know one of them has sort of frustrated look on their face right like you just you can't talk that plainly in a novel right like it has to be so much more you have to make it so much more interesting and descriptive and uh more like more like a poet i guess it's a, totally yeah and it's just like you know you have to express to the person you know reading that 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 you know the person's got a frustrated look and that they're around the fire and stuff like that but but it has to be in a way that's not so simple <laughs> you know yeah yeah um, which i guess i guess that's revealing my own brain is that i'm a very simple person and anytime <laughs> you try and make make things complex for me it's it's too much i don't want to no it's intimidating though. that's true though like like that's exactly how my panel descriptions are like it's simple straight to the point yeah. just for the artist to like best understand it and convey that in the art so it's yeah, because I'm not trying to wow. Muscle. I'm not trying to wow the artist with my panel descriptions. You know, I'm yeah. not, I'm not Alan Moore. Want, you know, you don't want a whole page for like one panel. You, you want to keep yeah. them pretty succinct, also. Yeah, because I don't want him to have to do the Dave Gibbons thing of like I'm going to go through the script and highlight this, the you know, the very few lines that are, that are actually important and sort of forget the rest. Like I want him to just be able to look at it. There's a lot of white space on that page. They can see what they need to see and sort of move on with their day. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So so. I, I and actually in talking about that, what you know, sort of you say that you give pretty, you know, plain panel descriptions, you know, it sounds like you're not getting too flowery. Um, do you have any hard and fast rules as you're writing scripts? Like, do you ever, you know, impose sort of like panel count limits on yourself or like how many pages of script there can be for one page of comics? Like, are there any weird rules that you keep track of in your head? I don't give myself like uh, uh, limits for like pages and scripts or pages and issues because like as a creator on comics, that's kind of like the freedom I have. I can like make it however I want, but I, I stick usually somewhere between like 22 and 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, I keep my panels. Yeah. Descriptions are pretty, um, pretty sparse, just like straight to the point. Um, and I just describing stuff straight to the point. Um, and then for like dialogue, I, I try not to overdo dialogue sure. in panels. That's just like my personal uh, writing style. Like it'll, if somebody's talking in a panel, maybe one person would reply and then there would be like one more bubble after that. But I try not to do like more than that back and forth. Sure. Um, do you have do you have like a, an ideal panel count for for each page where like you don't want to go past, you know, seven panels or like you don't want to go under or, you know, like are there are there any little things like that that you have that are like nervous uh, ticks or like, you know, weird preferences? Yeah, I, I try not to overload the artist with too many panels. And then um, so like I don't think I've written past like seven panels or eight panels. But I mean, I usually sure. try to stick aim for like five or six if it's just like a regular page. Mm hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I always, uh, you know, I'm pretty close with my collaborators now. So I always tell them, like, if they want to add stuff or change anything, like, I'm open to all that always. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, good to have that openness. I feel like these days, for especially, you know, there's so many very talented cartoonists these days. And so many artists are, are becoming very good writers, which in and of itself is intimidating. 
And so it's like if you're too much of a, uh, you know, if you're too rigid or too much of a dick in the way that you write stuff like it, it feels like you're going to run out of uh, run out of options pretty quick. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just, uh, you know, the learning experience growing as a collaborator. And like you want to be a good collaborator that these artists enjoy working with. So just make it fun mm-hmm. and you're just making a story and making comics. So you want to have fun back and forth. Totally. Um, now, now talk about plotting. I think that it's it's interesting the way that a lot of people will approach pro- plotting because I think that everyone is a bit different. Um, you know, some people will will approach their plots as in you know they'll they'll get to a certain you know like they'll get to their their sort of beat and then go okay, you know what would this person do from here? What would this person do from here? What would this person do from here? And they'll kind of follow down that train until they find their sort of ending. And I think other people will will kind of you know look at it from a very broad angle of like okay here's you know, where I'm starting, here's where I want to get to, you know, and here's sort of the complication in the middle and then sort of like kind of connecting the threads between those three things. What's your kind of, what's your starting point or how do you sort of mold that clay? What do you, what do you start from? I start with uh, like the most important thing to me is the character arcs and the theme. So like everything Mm -hmm. I try to tie around that. So I'm probably looking at it more like at the broad view and like seeing what's going to happen, but making sure it ties into these uh, character decisions that they would make and making Mm -hmm. sure it ties into whatever the theme is for the story and just kind of like brainstorming through there. Sure. That makes sense. I, I, uh... I, th- I think it's like I don't, I don't know what it is if it's ADHD or something but I'm, I'm constantly like trying to do the battle of like forcing myself to write the other way of what's comfortable because I'm I'm very much like a high level like look at the plot and the structure kind of guy but like I I keep wanting to be that person who can like get in the head of a character and be like okay what would this person do when faced with this situation and and what kind of complications could come from that like I, my brain's just like not wired that way, but I want to be able to do it, you know? Yeah, I try to do that too. But then like jumping through different ser- series, it can be, uh, you can like, you can get a little burnt out doing that. Oh yeah, totally. Um, is there is there a genre to you that like is one that you don't ever want to touch or that you're just very intimidated by and have never felt like you could really have much of an idea for? Probably a Western. Uh, I, like, I was never into <laughs> Westerns until I played uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. And I just love that game. That kind of sure. got me into it. And then like, if I ever did it, I feel like I would have to combine it with like kind of like how Westworld is the first few seasons of that. Sure, sure. Yeah, that you can like kind of have your cake and eat it too by by doing sci-fi plots that involve like sort of what it means to be human, but also uh, <laughs> having having guns and horses. Yeah, yeah. And then like crime also, like I don't know if I would ever make a crime or want to, but like I know there's some people that just do it so well, the, the crime genre. Oh my, yeah, especially in comics. It's like, it feels like, you know, if you're going to do crime, like you have to be able to stand up next to, you know, like the Brubaker and Phillips books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, or like Alex DeCampi, I feel like does does a lot of that stuff really well. Um, yeah, that's it's a and it's interesting too to me. I this is something that I found interesting just looking at the sort of you know ethos of comics is that people are very very you know vehement readers of of the Brubaker Phillips crime comics, but for some reason it doesn't seem to translate to the rest of the crime genre, right? Like I can't really think of many comics that have been super successful outside of those that one collaborations you know crime comics i don't know yeah it's, it's true yeah i wonder what that is because it, it's people will launch them you know like it happens all the time where once every couple of years like a you know fairly well you know esteemed creative team will will just try to launch like a plain and simple crime book um but it kind of feels like it has to be something like Philadelphia or like something that still has that second element to it you know that that's on top of the crime which is fine by me i love that shit but 
it's just fun. I don't know. It's like fun to look at. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, that's true. I, I guess these like big name creators just get such a following that they'll follow them through any book. Like I'm sure, you know, Brubaker and Phillips, no matter what they make, they're going to have support. Yeah. It's it's like that. Yeah. That Gillen and McKelvey, Brubaker and Phillips, like Tom King and Mitch Garrods are probably there now, like where you can just, yeah, whatever they're doing, I guess, sign me up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, it's very interesting. And, and actually in talking about that too, what is your, you know, in terms of the the shape of your comics career, uh, uh, do you have ambitions to do, you know, like to do more company owned writing? Do you want to, you know, mostly focus on like creator own stuff? Do you kind of want to have a mix of both? I mean, what are the things that are kind of like goalposts or like, you know, kind of um, the things that you're setting out for yourself to sort of be able to do in the future? Mostly I want to stick with creator own comics. I mean, that's just what I love, but I mean, I'm not against doing any freelance work, just trying to make a living right now, but, uh, like for the long term, definitely creator owned. And then, so I got kind of got my start like through Kickstarter. So I guess like mm-hmm. the next step would be to try to get some work with some of these bigger creator owned, uh, publishers like image and dark horse and vault and all these other ones that popped up now. Sure. Sure. Have you, and have you had any discussions with some of those publishers? Do you, yeah, do you feel I like have there's... now. And, oh, yeah. uh, but like as a new creator, um, like the way you network and stuff is through conventions and that's how I was able yep. to meet editors in the past. And then because of the pandemic, you know, there hasn't been any conventions in the past year. So it's kind of like, oh. I'm kind of like at the launching point, I feel like I have my career, but I haven't been able to meet anyone else. So, um, I have like a few things in the works, but hopefully, you know, hopefully conventions come back later this year and I can, try to meet some more editors and stuff. I mean, look, I, I know that there are editors and publishers who listen to this show. I've talked to you before. Uh, just to sort of run down for those editors, there's a there's a pretty nice audience for for Curtis's books. I mean, look, the Wild Cosmos, uh, the, the, the most recent, the third Kickstarter for Wild Cosmos had $22,000 of backing. Uh, we talked about Beastlands. I mean, the the most recent uh, campaign that you launched had fifty three thousand dollars of backing. There's an audience who wants your books. So I mean, if these people know what's good for them, <laughs> if they if they know how to make some money, I mean, that's you're doing that as a one man shop. Obviously, like with artists and stuff like that. But I mean, in terms of the logistical, a one man shop for the sort of getting things printed, getting them out, getting them to everyone. Like you're delivering on that, and people are still that interested. Multiple campaigns through. You know, this is the this is the the campaign for Beastlands issue five. Like you're not losing people after, you know, the first issue or second issue. It seems like you're only gaining them. So, um, you know, to all those editors and publishers out there, just keep that in mind. Thank you. I appreciate that endorsement. <laughs> of course, man. I, I, you know, as a backer myself, I've, I've enjoyed the work and I want to see it keep coming. But I also, for your sake, I hope that you don't continue to be drowned in, in packages and, and tape and shipping labels. Yeah, man. Yeah. The next step is definitely to hopefully work with some other publishers where I can focus. Like, it's just about time, you know, like uh, that stuff takes so much time packaging. And like, I would rather spend my time creating new stories and working on new comics, you know? Totally. That's why our number one fan, Eric Stevenson, needs to sort of get on the phone and and give you a call. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, Mount Rushmore's um, for a second. You know, I think we all sort of in some vague way or another kind of have a Mount Rushmore in our head of, of various different things. And I, I want to know for you who that is for for creators, um, you know, like the creators that have influenced you personally the most. Who are the five creators that are that are kind of up there? Rick Remenders, for sure, my favorite writer, just his uh, writing style and then the kind of high concepts and stuff. Um, uh uh-huh. So I'm definitely. What's, what's your favorite Remender book? 
so hard to choose. Like I love all of his stuff, but probably Tokyo Ghost is. I have the big. I have, I have a few of his big hard covers. Low is amazing. Dead, uh, yeah. Dead to Class, Black Science. Like I love them all. I love that he puts out those enormous hardcovers. Honestly, like that's that's my favorite thing to get from any of my you know favorite image series is the giant ones that have all the behind the scenes stuff in the back and the oversized pages. It's oh, beautiful. I love them. Yeah, and yeah. then um, Cy Spurrier is another writer that I look to up to a lot. Oh, hell yeah. um, I, I love all of his uh, creator owned stuff. It's really good. Mm. Um, Isola by uh, Carl Kersel and uh, Brendan Fletcher. I, oh man, I, I yeah. look up to those guys a lot. Um, I, I've heard them talk about like Studio Ghibli as well so like just their storytelling style and uh like that whole fantasy genre yeah i can definitely see like your your especially beastlands but i mean i feel like all of your stuff definitely is is very in line with that kind of tone that the isola strikes strikes mm-hmm. and then um like it's hard not to like of course robert kirkman you know what he's done mm-hmm. with the walking dead and um like just create your own comics like like oh seeing God, those yeah. guys leave uh marvel or, or any like of these corporate comics just to do their own stuff is inspiring to see the, every time I listen to or watch that, uh, I, I assume you've, you've watched that Kirkman manifesto yeah. from whenever the hell it was like mm-hmm. 2010 or whatever. Like I, that, that video to me is like, anytime I'm feeling like a little bit down or like a little bit like discouraged on making comics, like that video or like there was, there's a few like Todd McFarlane thing, which like I like Todd McFarlane, his books are fun and everything. I'm not like a huge fan necessarily. Right. Like I, I'll, dip in and out of his stuff but his enthusiasm and his passion for like the medium and stuff that's that's the thing that's so infectious and inspiring and yeah kirkman shares that same thing yeah man it was kind of uh i think that kind of helped us to get where we are now where creator owned comics are at the forefront and everybody's making their own stuff on kickstarter totally and what's what's for kirkman what's your what's your favorite kirkman book favorite kirkman book um i really liked firepower i got the new um the, oh, the first trade for that and that was i really yeah. enjoyed that that Chris Somney art is so, I mean, like I, I, I'm a sucker for anything Chris Somney draws and, and that, that combination felt like one that just fit perfectly. And the fact that like, you know, their first issue is an entire trade and then they, you know, already have like two volumes out and like apparently 10 more issues in the can. Like that's, that's admirable. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy to see, like, I, I don't remember how many issues they had done, but I, I don't know. They had like 12 issues or something done when it released it's crazy yeah it's nuts so do you tend to to stay tapped into like the comics industry on on sort of all levels like as you're as you're sort of creating and and really active and obviously making it yourself do you try to make a point to like keep up on what's happening or do you sort of sometimes tend to shut it out kind of i mean like uh, i'm always reading creator owned comics like uh you know like remender just had some new seven to eternity and scumbags really great too his other new series right. so i'm like reading new issues that come out but it's also you got to spend time creating and not just like consuming though too <laughs> yeah that's always the always the tough part you're and i, I don't want to be like over influenced too so i guess like like i'm still a comic fan but like i definitely want to have my own um i guess my own writing style and my own uh direction of my comics and stuff Sure. Yeah. It's like you, you, you watch Star Wars too many times when you're going to start writing and suddenly you're just doing a sort of poor George Lucas in tim- in impersonation. Yeah. Do you and, and, and in terms of movies, too, I mean, obviously, like movies are semi-universal. You've talked a lot about, obviously, Studio Ghibli movies. I, first question actually is going to be what's your what's your number one Ghibli? Princess Mononoke. That's interesting. Why, what, what's what's the thing that stands out to you about it? Ah, man, I've seen it so many times and I feel like still when I rewatch it, like I'm always just learning new little themes from it i don't know like my girlfriend asked me like why do i watch it so much i'll have like a i'll probably watch it twice a year 
Um, but I just <laughs> love that kind of like fantasy world and the themes about, uh, um, I forgot what that town's called now, Iron Town and how it's like killing mm-hmm. nature. And I, I just really like those themes in that story. Hell yeah. It's, that's a movie I, I finally saw it last year, like pretty, I feel like this was like February or something, like right before everything shut down. But um, AMC was doing these like screenings or like, I think they called it Ghibli Fest where like every day they would have a different Ghibli movie that was having screenings there. And so I was able to see Mononoke was one of them, but a bunch of the Ghibli movies in theaters for the first time. And that was like fantastic. Yeah, it was still cool. dubs, but how they would do um they were doing like monthly releases of all the ghibli films and then yeah. um that, that used to be like the only way to watch them like they weren't streaming anywhere and now they're all on like hbo max mm-hmm. i know i finally i i finally watched um nausicaa for the first time uh just recently and that movie was awesome yeah that one's great too did you ever read the manga no i didn't i'm super curious to see how he was as as a cartoonist as an auteur like i i i'm very very interested by like that that type of creator you know your otomos and and people like that who sort of you know started in comics and ended up you know doing a lot more in animation um i almost bought that this year but then i didn't pull the trigger but yeah i definitely want to get that eventually just to have it in my collection and read it and see how his like storytelling is for graphic novels totally i feel like once i feel like when the dune movie comes out there will be a lot of people who are gonna discover nausicaa sort of through that since it is such a like kind of similar story in terms of you know themes and obviously the world is like very similar and i think miyazaki himself was like that you know this story is very influenced by dune but i feel like that 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 movie and that manga are gonna have like a big sort of resurgence around the time dune comes out maybe i should uh buy it before dune comes out huh <laughs> yeah there we go we'll, we'll start speculating on it we'll, we'll sort of buy buy <laughs> up the all the stock <laughs> exactly <laughs> What, uh, have you seen spirited away i love spirited away so much that I, that's might be my favorite yeah yeah I, I think that's my favorite ghibli like I, it was the first one i discovered and actually i i had never heard of miyazaki i'd never heard of ghibli um i mean i was only like 13 at the time but like um there was an ad for it it must have been the first release of spirited away in the u.s or whatever but there was an ad for it in a teen titans comic i was reading uh as like a probably i, I might have been even younger i might have been like 12 or like 11 years old but like um there's an ad for it in a teen titans comic i was reading and like i was like whoa this looks amazing like the art like for some reason like really spoke to me even though it was super different from like anything in those american comics at the time and so i i demanded that we rent it from blockbuster and uh yeah instantly was like fully hooked on it yeah yeah love that movie um now i i also and this is something and maybe it's like only you know a specific kind of person does this but i have in notebooks and also like on my phone and whatever, I have piles and piles and piles of like little notes with like two sentence, half baked ideas for a story that I'm convinced every time I write it down, like someday I'm going to come back to this and there, there'll be something there. I don't have something yet, but I'm going to have something at some point. Is that something you do? Do you just keep a bunch of like half baked ideas that you're hoping come back around at some point? Yeah. In my, uh, in my, in my iPhone's notepad, I have like 500 notes of like <laughs> random ideas and I constantly scroll through. I'm like, wait, I think I had an idea for this or even like book titles I'll put in those notepads. Sure. Totally. So I always think I'm going to come back and like use it one day. I'm so bad with titles. That That's the thing. Truly, it would be embarrassing if anyone were to see the, the titles for all these half-baked ideas. Like none of them are good. <laughs> they're all like the most basic, like, and oftentimes they're just like the, the hacky, like sort of pitch for it of like uh this meets that or whatever because i'm just like i don't i don't know what to call this like it's yeah i, I I'm, I'm glad to know that someone else out there just has a, a phone filled with like 
probably mostly bad ideas but there's a, yeah. a few nuggets in there that we're convinced are going to pay off sometime yeah and, and titles drive me crazy too like i'll spend so much time trying to think of a good title and it, it'll drive me crazy for like weeks or months until uh until i figure out the right one like i don't think i thought of the actual beastlands title until title. it took me like a year like i have a notepad for like a year before the first beastlands come out with like, like all the possible titles and they were just all horrible that's reassuring to hear, man, because like legitimately I have I'll have stories that I'm like, you know, drawing. I had a comic I was doing on Instagram that like I put out pages for and still didn't have a title for <laughs> like, it just doesn't. I, I if so, if anyone out there, look, if someone out there is a good like if you if you know that you have a, a talent for coming up with titles, start advertising yourself, start start lending yourself out freelance for a small fee to just come up with a title for people's projects. And I bet you'll 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 make a career it. out of it. Yeah. Titler. Yeah. Are you kidding me? But then when like you finally the- get the title, when it clicks, it feels so good when, it, when you finally think of like the right oh. title for something truly it's it's phenomenal. I had although there was which like so there, there was a comic that I and I still want to do it at some point, but it was like about a, a, a football player who was a defensive back and like had like sort of this, you know, history of like succeeding through violence. And he had left his town behind. He was going to like he was coming back to his town and discovering that like it had been, you know, sort of like taken over by this enormous company that was like keeping everyone like, you know, sort of uh, mentally weak, let's say. Um, and and I was like, I was like, oh, it's it's of course it's going to be called safety because he plays safety. And and he's you know, he's a defensive player who is now going on the offensive against this thing that's invaded his home. And anytime a defensive player goes on the offensive, that that's usually a safety because that's, you know, sort of like a way of scoring on defense. And it's also about the safety of this town. Oh, it's amazing. And then, like, of course, you know, six months later, Disney puts out like a nice, like heartwarming kids movie about a football player who plays safety. Uh, and it's and it's, of course, called safety. <laughs> Really grinded my gears, man. Ah, it stole, stole the wind you. out of my sails. They stole yeah. it. Um, uh, all right. So, so what to you in this time that you've been been making a living full time out of writing? Um, what's the big thing that's changed in your process or in your mindset or in your approach to to writing comics? You know, have have you noticed any big noticeable changes in the way that you're approaching things? Oh man. Um, I mean, just uh, I guess the. I always talk about the, the the balance aspect of like staying creative and like also like the kind of uh, office work you have to do or, um, you know, like putting out Kickstarter updates and dealing with your fans and then um, boxing books. So I guess just getting better at that is something that I'm still trying to figure out and making sure I still have time to make new pitches and like do what I actually enjoy, like the actual writing aspect of it. Totally. Yeah. And I guess that you are sense. thinking more of like a, a money mind because like you want to make sure you're you have income coming in through these Kickstarters yeah. to uh, to make it to actually make a living. So I don't have to go back Absolutely. to like a day job. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, the, like and I, that's an interesting thing, too, is that when it becomes your necessity, when it becomes the basis of your income, does it change your relationship with the work at all? No, I mean, I still love it. Um, like, I, I just feel lucky. Like, I really, really hated my day job. So, like, I was mm. the kind of person that was trying to quit the first time, the first chance I could. Like, I don't even know if I was ready to necessarily quit. And then I just kind of got lucky with how well these Kickstarters did last year. Um, mm. So, like, I was I was ready to quit the first chance I could and uh, and try to give this a go at doing it full time. So, now it's just about, uh, like, keeping new things in the works, like balancing uh, continuing the series. And then like, I have a few graphic novel pitches that I'm working on that if a publisher doesn't pick them up, then I'll, uh, you know, try to like kickstart like a full graphic novel. I think that's probably like, my next uh, goal on Kickstarter since I've Hell done yeah. like so many single issues. 
And I mean, look, that's clearly the the single issue game is definitely one of, you know, that that is helpful in sort of building those things up. And I do think that, you know, that that cumulative kickstarting of, you know, single issue at a time, single issue at a time seems to have helped really build your audience up. But I think you're right. You know, I think that at this point you have this audience that is clearly coming back and supporting your work. Uh, you know that 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 is probably the next hurdle to to jump is to see if you can fully kickstart you know a, a long form you know or like a, a large graphic novel project that'd be very interesting to see. Yeah, it definitely feels like the next step. Like something with that, you need a, a much bigger goal. But I think I've uh, built up enough over the years where I have kind of a an audience that likes my style of writing and likes my stories. So hopefully they'll come back for like a full graphic novel, and then we can just get the funding all in one Kickstarter to make the full yeah. book. Hell yeah. Now I want, I want to talk about some of the logistics, uh, uh, real quick as we're, you know, sort of entering the tail end before we get into the, you know, the, the super fun questions or whatever. Uh, tell me a bit like when, so when you're, when you're first, you know, like, let's say on your, you know, obviously like the training wheels, uh, Kickstarter was, was fairly simple, I'm sure to, to sort of put the logistics together, but you know, for the first issue of wild, wild cosmos, for instance, how do you go about figuring out how much money you need uh, uh, for, you know, obviously art, for printing, for all of that? And then how do you go about finding those resources for printing and stuff? Where are you looking for all this information? Um, so like you're going to you're going to hopefully before you launch a Kickstarter, you have an artist you're working with. You're going to know what their page rate is. So you have to factor sure. that into like your Kickstarter goal. And then um, you have like a few different. Uh, I mean, these days, there's actually a lot of like comic printers you can go with. And you can mm-hmm. get print quotes from them for free and uh, like sample packs to see like what quality you want. So that all goes in the goal. And then the hard part is shipping like that. For some of that, you kind of have to like guess because you don't know exactly how much it'll weigh or if rates will uh, change or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where you can like kind of get in the hole. So just make sure you charge enough for like international shipping and stuff. That can be a headache. Um, but it's like adding up all of that. And um, and then, you know, if you get lucky, you make extra on the on the Kickstarter. So you have enough to for yourself. Yeah, that's, but, that's I mean, definitely a big That's challenge. years down the line. Like my first few Kickstarters, I didn't have, you know, if anything, I was making not enough money on there and like had to help with my day job to like help pay for the comic and stuff. But sure, you know, it paid off where now I make plenty extra for myself. Now, how much in terms of like, if you were to calculate a, a percentage or whatever, or like a, you know, an amount per issue, how much are you factoring in for that international shipping usually? Is is there a, like a range in your mind that it's sort of come out to? Oh, man, it's, uh, I mean, it depends on how many orders. It, it's hard to tell, like, and then, um, like, depending on how much it weighs, uh, but it's mm-hmm. usually a few thousand for every Kickstarter just goes to international shipping. Holy shit. But I charge, I mean, I charge a lot for it and sometimes people get mad, but like I, I have shown, shown people like, uh, from stamps.com, like how much I paid for uh shipping. And it's like, I'm like, there's nothing I can do. Like I can't go in the hole yeah. trying to no, know it totally. And that's the thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're a, you're a one man shop. Like it's, you know, it's, it's all you doing it. They can't, uh, you can't quite expect, you know, to, to just cover the shipping, right. As, as one person sending books out or to, to have cheap, like you, you're, you're bound by the restrictions of the sort of, you know, the economy and the the marketplace. Yeah. I definitely can't afford to just pay for myself. <laughs> uh, now I'm, I'm curious, which printer do you go through and have you tried multiple printers and, and sort of, you know, ended up on one that tends to be pretty consistent for you or have you stuck with the same one throughout? Yeah, I have uh, printed with multiple before. Uh, I've printed with Regent Publishing before. They did the mm-hmm. first issue of The Wild Cosmos. And then um, I've done digital printing through Kablam before. They are mm-hmm. good if you just want some, something like cheaper and quick. 
And now mm-hmm. my, my main printer I go through for all my books now is Print Ninja. And okay. uh, like, I'm really happy with uh, their customer service and like the customizable options you can print. Like my single issues are super high quality, like much, much more high quality than probably anything you'll find in a comic shop, which is, is it, which is uh, expensive. But like, luckily, we can afford it and we make the Kickstarter goal every time to get it done. That's amazing, man. That's but awesome. They, they and do, I um like the we have like numeric foil stamping on the covers for the collector's editions where like uh everyone has like a unique foil stamp on it and stuff. So and so I, I've only I've only gotten your your comics through digital. Uh, tell me about like you know the sort of the paper stock and stuff like that. Have you have you gone in to like really figure out which you like? Do you end up with you know, do you like more glossy or a little more textured? Like where where do you find yourself balancing out on? Yeah, like I'm a huge uh, because of from self publishing. Like I feel like I'm a huge book design nerd now. So uh, I do <laughs> um, like pretty thick like 85 pound interior pages, uh, glossy. Mm. And then um, I I love matte covers. Um, So like my books always have matte covers and I've done spot gloss before. I've done foil title stamps before, Um, like all those little extra bells and whistles. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. I that that's the thing that I'm like looking forward to the most as I'm kind of looking down the barrel of of throwing some things onto Kickstarter and doing the printing myself, which like I haven't worked in printing at all yet. You know, it's it's everything I've done has just been digital. And so like that's the thing that I'm like very scared for and also excited about is to be like, okay, let's, let's get into the weeds on paper stock and, and, you know, designing and what kind of files am I delivering and like, what's going to hurt me? What's going to help me like, um, gamut stuff and things like that. But. Yeah. I was worried for that stuff at first, but then I just started to enjoy it. And then like in the early days, I would just go to Barnes and Noble and like, look at what books I like and just like seeing what you like. And I just love that matte feel and spot gloss on like some trades and stuff. Looks awesome. Hell Yeah. No, that's 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 freaking dope. Um, so you know, I, as as we start to wrap up here, uh, I'm I I want to hear about sort of your experience in 2020. Obviously, you've you've been having to continue writing, continuing being creative because this is the year that it's become your full income. You know, what have your methods been of keeping yourself inspired, creative? You know, keeping yourself motivated and keeping that that wheel going. Obviously, it's necessity, but like you know, what are your methods of sort of rejuvenating yourself as this year is a little bit uh, crazy, obviously? Yeah, when the, you know, when the pandemic first hit, it was hard to do anything creative. Like if you paid attention to the news too much, and then with the politics in uh, in the United States, it's hard to like, if, you just kind of have to, like, turn that stuff off sometimes. And uh, otherwise, I don't think I would get anything done, you know? Sure. Do but you have then, any like little yeah. ritual? I mean, or like, uh, yeah, like it doesn't have to be anything as official as a ritual, but yeah, (laughs) Uh, like just getting some air, going outside, walking my dog. Um, I I live pretty close to the beach. So going to the beach, um, going, I do a lot of backpacking when it's a nice weather. So I go to like uh, Mammoth in California, go backpacking in the mountains and then just like consuming entertainment. Also, like there's, there is a time where I feel like when you get kind of like that writer's block and stuff where maybe you just need a break and play like a good game or watch a good show or watch a good movie. Yeah, sure, sure. Where, where where do you tend to get the most writing done in your head, at least like whether or not it's actual writing, but like the most progress done on on stories or whatever? Uh, it's funny, like when I when I did have the day job, I would always be listening to podcasts or soundtracks of like instrumentals. And I feel like I would get come up with so many so many more ideas back then because I was always like doing stuff and keeping myself busy. And then kind of in my head, I was always, uh, you know, thinking of new things. So now it's like <laughs> when I'm like walking my dog and stuff or just like, you know, cooking and listening to podcasts and then I'm always just thinking of new stuff or thinking sure, of sure. twists on like 
other stories that I, I, I already uh, like. Now, now, what kind of dog do you have? I have a beagle. Oh, she's, uh She got hit by a car when she was like Ooh. seven months. And then that's kind of inspired the whole Beeson story. And then luckily she survived and um, and like had to like care for her. And she's made like a full recovery now. She's almost five now. Oh my God. That's, that's so heartwarming to hear, but also heartbreaking to hear. Yeah. I, it, was, uh, uh, it was a learning experience and, uh, yeah, it was, it was rough. Oh yeah. I, I grew up with a beagle and she was very, very sweet. She, she will always hold a nice place in my heart. And now I've uh, got a little, uh, little chihuahua mix sitting right next to me, just staring at me as if I'm about to drop some crumbs or something. <laughs> yeah. Beagles <laughs> are great dogs man. this is my first one. And, uh, oh. like I'm definitely a beagle person now. I feel like they're they're adorable man they they i don't know something something about a beagle is very cute i mean i i fall in love with every dog i meet but uh yeah, I'm the same uh, way. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, did you grow up with dogs or is this kind of your your first foray into the dog world i grew up with dogs but this is like my first one as an adult on my own so i feel like it's a whole another level of like a bond where i feel like it's my kid maybe because i don't have actual oh, yeah. kids yet but uh like it feels <laughs> sure. like my daughter you know I am a hundred percent with you there. Yeah. Also no kids and also feel I'm, I'm certain that I, uh, overstep the importance or, or the, um, fragility of a, of a dog. Um, it's always that thing where you talk about your pet and like, you know, people who have kids will, will roll their eyes and say, yeah, 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 whatever. It's, it's not the same thing, Yeah. but to us, we don't have to know that. Yeah. We don't have to know that. <laughs> now for the listeners, if they want to, if they want to, you know, peep the dog if they want to see the dog see how cute she is uh, uh where can they find pictures of the dog oh man she has of course she has an instagram it's uh oh does she have an instagram i i actually was was like <laughs> setting up to plug your own but if she has her own instagram even better of course she does yeah it's, it's at ellie the beagle and then ellie the um, beagle. you know i'm always posting around my stories on instagram too whenever we go to the beach and stuff and i'm at curtis clow hell yeah and that's on twitter as well right yep yeah hell yeah uh now uh, First off, you know, we, we have our, our one last question that we ask everyone who's on the show. But but before I ask that, I, I want to sort of get the, you know, the, the last word on slightly exaggerated. What what should people be looking for? What should they look forward to with the book? And, and you know, like what, what's tell them tell them about the campaign. Tell them about the book. So slightly exaggerated. I mean, hopefully they will uh, read it and get this fun fantasy adventure story that has um some deeper meaning that uh, maybe they can take with them after they read it about kind of uh, life and death and life after death and giving your life meaning. Mm. Hell yeah. I love that. And what, tell, tell me a little bit about some of the tiers. What, what are the things that people could, uh, can look out for when they head over to the campaign page? So um, if you are international and don't want to pay like the expensive shipping, I do always have like digital tiers where you can get all my old comics on there as well. And then yeah. um, I have the physical tiers where we have like collector's versions with the uh, numeric foil stamping on the cover. Like I was saying that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll have tiers with um, like all my other comics like Beastlands and the Wild Cosmos also. Hell yeah. Um, well, Curtis, the last question that we ask everyone who comes on the show is why do you love comics? I love comics because it's my um, favorite storytelling medium. And I feel like it's a great medium to tell uh, important stories with like deep meaning with a mix of uh, words and art. Wow. Hell yeah. That's that's succinct. That's nice. That's clear. I love it. And Curtis, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It was good to uh, to be back on. Well, I guess my first time. So I mean, technically, you are back on. It's a it's a lost episode, but we'll count it. You've, you're a two time guest. You're a returning guest, returning champion, and uh, you know, do it. Do a victory lap. 
It's good to be back on, man. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. And thank you so very much to Curtis for joining the show. It's been a long time coming, and I'm so glad that we finally got him on the airwaves, in the waveforms, whatever other words you want to use. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Curtis Clow. It's a great follow. I love uh, love seeing the stuff Curtis posts. And man, that guy is a freaking workhorse. He gets so much done, and I, I admire it. <laughs> Aspire to be uh, like Curtis. Anyway, uh, thank you as well to Sean Rosner for the music in the show. You can find him at Sean the Rosner on Instagram. Thank you to Garm for sponsoring the show. Go to uh, garmcompany.com slash TMBC to get discounts on all your digital art needs. Uh, and thank you once more for listening. Um, I can't wait for more episodes to come. I've got a guest that I'm very excited about uh, lined up and, and more to come as well. Um, you can follow the show at TMBC Workshop on Twitter and Instagram uh, to sort of keep up with what's coming and, and you know, stay stay in touch, tweet at it, whatever you want to do. I am often not on that account, but I'd love to, to, to change that. And so if you're wanting some more Twitter stuff, uh, go ahead and follow that. And that'll kind of let me know that people are wanting to engage with more of that stuff. Um, you can also follow me at Jason Halftones on Twitter and Instagram. That's just where I uh, shout into the void um, and, you know, yell at people uh, about random things and, uh, you know, probably get too vocal about my opinions, which are mostly likely bad. Um so, you know, if you want to engage in that kind of thing, or you can, you know, find me on Instagram for uh, food pictures and artwork. Thank you again. If you like the show, drop a rating or review and keep at it. Might be cool.com. You never know. <laughs>